Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to over 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first timer, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcast without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, how about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Halut Kher. Halut is a Sudanese political analyst, a broadcaster, and activist, and the founding director of At Confluence Advisory, a think-and-do tank in Khartoum. Our conversation is about a conflict many people appear to have forgotten, the civil war in Sudan. Khalud, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. Uh, can I first take you back to April 2019? It was the military who removed Omar al-Bashir, a dictator in power for 30 years, but it was the people peacefully protesting that were most responsible for his overthrow. At that time, what were your thoughts and your hopes for a democratic Sudan? It's difficult to overstate just how euphoric people in Sudan were at the time, because, as you say, the military were, in the end, the ones to remove him. But they never would have if it hadn't been for the very large scale and, more importantly, sustained protests. So the 2018-2019 revolution was a sort of coming together of such a broad spread of the Sudanese public, really sort of underscoring the extent to which the Bashir regime had by the end become very hated, but also the way in which that regime had entrenched itself in so much of Sudanese political, economic and social life as to bring about such a response, I think, from such a broad range of people. You know, the way you describe it reminds me so much of Tahrir Square, and and this is coming, what, seven years after Tahrir, or eight years, rather, after Tahrir. But it has that same kind of energy of people from different walks of life, men and women coming together, students, business people. What was it like? It felt like the beginnings of a new Sudan that was made by the people. You know, Sudan has had so many challenges to the state almost since the inception of the independent state in 1956. But oftentimes, or what we have seen, I think, mostly in the, in the news, are the instances of armed resistance to the state. And for all the very, you know, long history of armed resistance to the state that we've seen in Sudan, it has always been instances of non-violent resistance that have brought down dictators. First, Aboud in 1964, then Nimeri in 1985, and then Bashir in 2019. There has never been an instance of armed rebellion that has brought down a dictator in Sudan. And I think, you know, the, the previous 
experiences of 1964, 1985 were very much present. There had clearly been a lot of learning by people who had taken part in, in the revolution of 2018, 2019 of previous instances. But what felt different this time is not just the breadth of Sydney society that was taking part, but also the fact that it was an overwhelmingly young population that had never seen previous instances of revolution. This was an entirely new moment of resistance that also was, you know, sort of remained true to to previous very successful instances of, of resistance. So it was it was a very a way of bringing in, I think, different generations of the country. We saw people chanting about the unity of Sudan, of uh, places that had been experiencing very acute violence by the state, places like Darfur, etc. We had seen a large proportion of the protesters come out uh, that, that were women and that were women of all ages and of all backgrounds. And actually, I would credit the sustained political action of the 2018-2019 revolution to the large presence of women. You know, previous instances of revolution took a few days in the 60s to a few weeks um, in the 80s. But in the case of uh, Bashir, it took you know six months to unseat him and to you know try and and sort of um, dismantle his his um, security apparatus and, and his regime through protests, and that is really you know the lifeblood of that was really different groups of women working in different ways. Whether it was the young women who were working on educational sit-ins that were taking place, whether it was you know the tea ladies who spent so much time not just providing refreshments but also cooking for people particularly during Ramadan uh, whether it was you know the mums the grandmas who came out to say we support you and we will make sure that the security services um, understand that we support you and that they can't vilify you and that we can use, sometimes even use our own bodies to protect you you know I they played such a big role uh, in that, and that is really, I think, what provided the lifeblood of such a sustained protest. Now, under pressure from the African Union and Western governments, the military agreed to a transitional government, and Abdallah Hamdak emerged as prime minister later in 2019. And he served for two years, then was removed by the military, briefly returned, and was removed again in early 2022. What are your thoughts on Mr. Hamdak and did he ever have a chance of succeeding? I think, you know, the, the odds were stacked against him from the outset. He was someone who was, you know, relatively unknown, I would say, to the public. He was somewhat known within elite political circles. Uh, he had been, for example, considered for a role at the end of the Bashir regime. They had wanted to bring in someone new who wasn't necessarily part of the regime, who could help them whitewash their image a bit and help Bashir secure a third term in 2020. That, of course, never came to pass, partly because of the revolution. But when the discussions in 2019 came about about who would be a, a sort of 
prospective uh, prime minister, he was chosen precisely because he was an outsider, because political elites at that time all wanted uh, their own political leaders to to be the the sort of the new head of uh, the civilian cabinet during the transitional period. And he was in many ways the tiebreaker, somebody who was coming outside of the political party frameworks and who had actually been come from outside of Sudan as well. Hamdok had spent the 30 years prior to his premiership outside of the country. And at the time, that was thought to be a strength because he wasn't sort of tainted by the stain of the NCP. He wasn't having to make compromises with a sec- the security regime of Bashir, for example, to run a business, etc. But in many ways, that was also one of his weaknesses, that he didn't have a background as to what Sudanese, ordinary Sudanese people had experienced experienced in the 30 years, that he didn't have a stake in the country in the same way that they did. And of course, he was also somebody against whom there were campaigns uh, trying to discredit him from the get-go. And similarly, someone who had a lot of expectations on him regarding the transformational changes that people had wanted to see, for example, in the economy, uh, for example, in regards to inflation, cost of living, everyday quotidian concerns of ordinary citizens. And at the same time, he was expected to polish Sudan's image from, you know, a sort of pariah state uh, to one that could rejoin the global community with pride. And I think actually on that latter point is probably where he is most successful. You know, he was able to get Sudan off the sponsor of terrorists, which which um, enabled Sudan to be able to at least start conversations around around attracting foreign direct investment. And, and on the global stage, Sudan was able to showcase something of a change from its time under, you know, military autocratic government to something that was, you know, something in the image of a much more, you know, civilian friendly image under the avuncular personage of Abdullah Hamdok. I want to talk about what was behind the civil war that broke out in April 2023 and is ongoing. But first of all, I need you to tell our listeners about the two generals involved in it. General Burhan in charge of SAF, the Sudan Armed Forces, and Hameti, the boss of the Rapid Support Forces Militia, the, the RSF. Let's begin with General Burhan. Can you paint a word picture for us, a sort of person he is? Sure. I mean, I, let me just go back to Hamdog, because, of course, Hamdog's time didn't just end with the with the coup in October of 2021. He was persuaded to come back for a short period of time, and, and, and he was sort of a forced, for want of a better word, to sign an agreement with the Putschists, Burhan and Hemeti, and others in the 21st of November 2021 agreement. And that agreement was vastly unpopular. I mean, he had towards the end of his his time, you know, just before the the coup, he had become somewhat unpopular because people hadn't seen their everyday fortunes improve at all under his stewardship. But the coup sort of gave him a resurgence of popularity because, of course, he was put under house arrest and there were concerns about his safety, etc. And people had come out into the street demanding his, his release and his reinstatement. But the way that his reinstatement came about was quite unpopular because he was seen to effectively be capitulating to the purchase rather than pushing for something else. And of course, he himself found that he couldn't enact any of the changes 
that that were necessary and therefore resigned only a few months later, two months later, in January of 2022. And really that moment when he resigned led the way, to answer your question about the generals, to where we are now. Because the differences between Burhan and Hemeti and sort of their visions for how to consolidate the coup that, remember, they led together, started to show around that time and their very sort of irreconcilable visions for their post-coup consolidation led them to seek very different and very diverging income streams, very different and very diverging foreign policies. And really that's what set set us on a path to war. And so, you know, Burhan is someone who was not first pick. He When uh, Bashir was removed from power, by the Sudanese armed forces in collaboration with the Rapid Support Forces. They had chosen uh, Awad ibn Auf, a general who was one of Bashir's deputies, but he fell within 24 hours. You know, immediately the street realized what the military was trying to do to effectively replace one general with another, and they absolutely rejected it. And so the military was scrambling to find someone in the summer of 2019 to replace both Bashir and Ibn Auf. And they sort of settled on Burhan. He didn't seem to many people to be um, the top pick even after Ibn Auf fell, but he was seen to be someone who, at least within SAF, could command enough respect. And he's someone who, again, was seen to be quite an anodyne figure, I think, and someone who perhaps would be reasonably palatable for, for, the, for the Sudanese public. And to some degree, that um, that was overshadowed by the massacre that took place in June, uh, June 3rd, 2019, uh, which led to the engagement of the region, in particular Ethiopia, in negotiations between civilians, the street um, on one side and the military uh, apparatus on the other. Throughout those negotiations, which of course produced uh, the constitutional document of 2019, it produced Hamdok as the head of the cabinet and it brought about this new and improved transitional military council headed by Burhan with, with Hemeti as his deputy. And we saw within that transitional military council uh, a sort of a new power play emerge, but also an already overreach of that body. That body was meant to have both civilian and military personnel in it. It was meant to be led by the military in the beginning and then hand over to the uh, civilians sort of halfway through the transitional period. It was meant to be a collegiate presidency, you know, all members were meant to be reasonably equal, but Burhan made himself a de facto president with Hemeti as his vice president. And really that set the tone for the uh, transitional period and actually not wanting to hand over civilian leadership of the um, sovereign council was one of the main reasons for the coup in October 2021. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Sudanese political analyst, Harud Her. The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, why not consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. What about the other general in Sudan's civil war? That's Hamdan Dagalo, a.k.a. Hemeti, the boss of the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces. You know, Hemeti is quite a mercurial character because even though he comes across as 
um, sort of a Joe Bloggs, an everyday person. And this is a very sort of manicured personality that he that he wants to put out. He has been one of the most strategic, I think, political players in Sudan. He's had something of a Napoleonic rise from a, you know, camel herder or a camel raider, sorry, in Darfur some 20 something years ago to, you know, until very recently, one of the most, well, actually until today, that one of the most powerful men in Sudan and one of the richest. And, you know, you don't have those kinds of uh, that kind of rise to power unless you are indeed very strategic and able to play politics very well. I think he's always been underestimated and actually to some degree they that may have irked him, but actually it worked in his favor because he was so underestimated by Bashir. He managed to inveigle himself into the Islamist, Islamo-military regime of Bashir without actually being an, an Islamist per se and without being a member of the traditional military elite. He has never gone to staff college. He was not part of the, you know, sort of rising in the ranks with other soldiers he um is is reported to not have even finished primary school let alone high school or indeed you know any sort of tertiary education and so he's very much an outlier in many ways and that has massively worked in his favor because of course being underestimated means that he could he could work quite covertly and indeed he did in fact do that to great success to become someone who could as we see right now playing out with in very dramatic fashion, could challenge the state and could challenge the institutions of the state, including the most enduring institution of state that Sudan has, which is the armed forces, and do quite well. You know, he has created the kinds of linkages with international entities, the kind of, you know, war chest, the kind of uh, recruitment drives that have enabled him to wage this war in many ways more successfully than the Sudan armed forces. And he is tied to, isn't he, to the atrocities in Darfur with the uh, rapid his rapid support forces. Absolutely, he was the the spear, if you will, of the Bashir regime's genocidal campaign in Darfur in two thousand and three to two thousand and five, and you know much longer. He, at the time, he and his colleagues, for want of a better word, were known as the Jindawi, the devils on horseback. And they led terrible campaigns on behalf of Khartoum in Darfur. But of course, there was a local dynamic there as well, in that his Arab identifying pastoralist group was also interested in displacing African sedentary farmers in order to have access to their land and their resources. And I think that in a nutshell is really his entire oeuvre. He is someone who is is very comfortable in the extraction-based, very predatory economics um, that Bashir also reveled in. And he continues to lean into that sort of economics to help him wage wage war and to previously, you know, sort of set himself up to be this the sharp end of Bashir's stick. That means that he is someone who is absolutely responsible for many of the atrocities that we've seen in Sudan, not just 20 years ago, but today. And of course, the violence in Darfur today, though it is linked to the broader national picture, it is also very much linked to the uh, Darfur conflict that started at least 20 years ago in 2003 and was never really resolved. And you have these two, Berhan and Hameti, 
you know, in my mind, they're kind of like wrestlers circling each other, waiting for the advantage. What caused the civil war? What what caused uh, it to happen? And more importantly, what is that war now doing to the people of Sudan? I think the conventional understanding of why the war broke out is that the rapid support forces, which after a 2017 law had become a sort of auxiliary part of the Sudan armed forces, didn't want to fully integrate into into SAF. And that Burhan and Hemeti were in the pro, in the political process preceding the war, and which I believe very much led to the war, they were unable to agree on a governing structure. But actually, these are sort of triggers and these are symptoms of a larger disagreement that they had. As I said earlier, you know, the main you know, reason that we have this war and the main reason why this war is being fought so viscerally is because both sides want an all-out victory. And an all-out victory would allow them to really bring about this vision that they have for a Sudan that would serve their purposes politically, financially. And that disagreement between what that Sudan looks like, that irreconcilability between these visions is really what has led us to this war. But the timeline, and you know, and you might say, for example, that because of that irreconcilability, it was always inevitable that they would come to blows. And certainly so many of us within civil society, within the analyst community, have been had been raising the alarm on this, saying that it's quite obvious that these two will come into uh, come into a confrontation and that that confrontation would be in Khartoum, not in some kind of rural setting as 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 has usually been the case in Sudan's history. But really this this uh, framework agreement that was signed on the 5th of December of 2022, that really sort of, I think, lit the fuse for um, the war that broke out several months later. This agreement had very clearly written into it that Hemeti and Burhan would both answer to a civilian head of state. In other words, they would be equal to each other and Hemeti would cease to be a deputy of Burhan's. And that is really the, the that was really the sticking point for SAF. Even though they had signed the agreement after a lot of pressure, mostly international, they immediately realized, realized what this would mean. That it would mean that they would not be able to consolidate their state um, with Hemeti as an equal to Burhan and the Sudan armed forces. Does Hemeti have the upper hand? War is one through blood and treasure. You need soldiers and you need money. And it seems like the RSF currently can command more of both than, than the Sudan armed forces can. Before the war, the Sudan armed forces had more personnel, it is estimated, than the RSF by about 100,000 more. But we know and we've been tracking that the RSF has been recruiting quite widely, not just in Sudan, but across the Sahel since before the war started. And so... And, and actually to this day, partly because they pay more. So on that alone, the RSF has the advantage. The other thing is that historically speaking, the Sudan Armed Forces has always outsourced its infantry to militias or um, sort of tribal groupings or paramilitary forces, including, of course, most acutely the RSF. And because it has now lost that infantry or it's fighting its own infantry, it is struggling to uh, win battles on the ground. 
And so, for example, what we saw in Khartoum was that almost at the, at the outset of the war, the RSF was able to cover a lot more ground and to take over a lot more ground than that SAF has done. And as recently as last month, we saw that the RSF was able to take over uh, Sudan's second city, Wadmedani, very quickly, partly because SAF didn't put up a fight, but also because um, there are reports that they were outnumbered. And so that plays an integral role as to why the RSF is able to challenge SAF in, just, just in such a way. But frankly, also, and that's something that's perplexing so many of us, both ordinary Sudanese as well as those within the political and analyst communities, that we're not seeing SAF fight back in ways that one might expect. The general picture is that the RSF has been able to leverage its pre-war assets, both diplomatic and financial, a lot more than the and then than SAF has. You know, SAF has regional and international backers too, but it's not able to rely on them to the same extent that the RSF can. And so I think, for example, what we've seen of Hemeti's recent tour of East Africa, part of that is linked to the fact that maybe for some of these countries, they want to see a new power in Khartoum. But of course, you know, what what, what you're dealing with here in, in Hemeti is not just an ordinary military actor. This is someone who has been at the forefront of so many atrocities, someone who is, an, you know, has been accused of committing genocide and other atrocities, ethnic cleansing, etc. So this is not, you know, they may be getting, frankly, more than they bargained for by supporting someone like Hemeti. Yeah, well, you've touched on the outside powers and, and they have played a significant role in the events leading up to the war and in the war itself, among them Egypt and I think particularly the United Arab Emirates. Can you talk a little bit about those outside players? So I think they have different relationships with counterparts in Sudan. You know, for Egypt, Egypt has a Sudan's closest neighbor in many ways. It has always felt that Sudan is its sort of an extension of its southern border rather than necessarily a neighbor. Before Sudan's independence in 1956, it was part of the Egyptian state. And I think actually in the minds of many Egyptian decision makers, it partially probably for them still is. And so there is an investment on what happens to, you know, in Sudan. You know, Egypt has been run by its military for a, a very long time and it has found an easy counterpart in Sudan's military and has always supported Sudan's military. Just before the war we saw the Egyptian military and the Sudanese military engage in combat exercises together. Partially that was in response to the Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam Egypt felt very threatened by. But also it, you know, it, it gave SAF um, a way of saying that, you know, we have friends in the region and, and very reliable, dependable friends in the region. For the RSF, they have a long standing relationship with the United Arab Emirates because, of course, the RSF made a lot of their money um, by being the go to mercenaries for the, Emir for the Emirates uh, adventures a whole misadventures perhaps might be a better word in Yemen and so the RSF has you know these connections financial and, and political connections with the Saudis and the Emiratis due to the war in Yemen and Hemeti has been able to forge or I should say the Degelo family it's not just Hemeti but his brother Abdul Rahim his other brother Al Ghani 
who is, has resided in the UAE for a long time, they as a family and as a family sort of political and security enterprise and of course economic enterprise, they have entrenched themselves in um, the UAE very deeply and particularly with the Emirati ruling family. And we see that very clearly in sort of the publicized photos of uh, Hemeti meeting with Mohammed bin Zayed. And we see that very clearly in, in sort of a lot of the positions that Hemeti has taken um, or the RSF has taken even before this war and vice versa with the Emiratis. You know, the Emiratis, of course, find Hemeti someone who is the answer really to their to their prayers. They don't want to engage too heavily with Saf and the Islamists because they have a foreign policy position to oppose uh, political Islam where they, where they find it. And so Hemeti becomes a very, very good alternative. And he's also someone who runs an organization in the RSF that is transnational and is able to act, continue to act, if you want, as a, as, as a mercenary group for ambitions beyond Sudan. And this is where some of the intractability of this conflict come in, because even if you find ways to end this war through some kind of ceasefire based on the conflict dynamics in Sudan, you also have to consider how you know some of these dynamics with SAF, but particularly the RSF, impact the region as a whole. And this region being the Sahel, being the Red Sea Basin, being you know the Horn of Africa, three big flashpoints for conflict in the past few years, and probably will continue to be so. And so, actually, you know, conversely, also finding solutions for the conflict in Sudan will not just uh, benefit Sudan, but also the these three regions I just mentioned. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's been described as the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. Uh, millions of people displaced, uh, tens of thousands uh, injured and killed. What needs to be done right now so that the struggle and the dream of the Sudanese people that you described so well when we began our conversation, that that dream of democracy can finally be realized? I think we need to get real frankly about what this war is and what it's about and also you know how long it may take looking at sudan's history a very very long history of war we see the conflicts of this nature between the central military and any other group uh, rebel group paramilitary group etc tend to last decades and so we have seen a lot of, for example, diplomatic pressure invested in a quick ceasefire or a quick agreement without actually also looking at some of the longer term issues related to this. You know, a ceasefire will end the fighting, which will in all likelihood not end the war. And so we need to be investing, the international community as a whole needs to be investing alongside the Sudanese people in both a short term uh, sort of end to the fighting, but also long-term ways to end the war. Because the difficulty will be that if a ceasefire is negotiated, and that will be, that's quite a big if, several ceasefires, even once agreed, have been immediately broken. There is no guarantee that conflict won't start again, unless the broader issues around, you know, what led us to the war are also resolved. And that involves asking difficult questions about international financing. It involves asking difficult questions about transitional justice and involves asking difficult questions about 
actually narrowing down what it is, um, what kind of Sudan that we as Sudanese want, want to live in and one that doesn't create these kind of marginalizations and frankly see different groups contesting the state rather than investing in the state uh, in a mutually beneficial state. Mm. Um, but in the meantime, we also have to look at, you know, what issues resonate with ordinary people in Sudan right now who are, you know, fleeing for their lives, who are under constant bombardment, who are under, um, you know, surveillance, who have been, some of whom have been arrested, abused, disappeared. Protection of civilians, I think, is one of the key investments that needs to be made now, not just um, a search for a ceasefire, but as some kind of protection of civilians mechanism. And that can look like lots of things. It can look like safe zones and safe passages to get to those safe zones. It can look like a regional military force that is brought in uh, to do protection of, protection of civilians work. It can look like working through other regional diplomatic and human rights in infrastructures to bring about better documentation and that would lead to prevention and not just identification of uh, civilians abuses but we also need to look at the humanitarian picture you know currently we have over 80 percent of sudan's health facilities are not functioning you have of the 23 million children in sudan you have 19 million over 19 million out of school with no outlook on the horizon for a return to education those are the things that will have generational impacts on people in fact they already are starting to and unless we look at those very immediate concerns alongside the search for a ceasefire, we're going to allow that suffering to continue until at such time we're able to secure a very elusive ceasefire. Mm. Yeah, so, so many, so many challenges and so many questions that, that need urgent answering. And of course, the, the great determination of the Sudanese people in their efforts to achieve a democratic society that they so, so wish to deserve. Um, I think I would actually, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I would actually just add also that, you know, what we've seen in Sudan, and, and I would credit the revolution with this, or the, at least the infrastructure, the political infrastructure and the resistance infrastructure that was put in by resistance groups, particularly the neighborhood resistance committees during the revolution, you know, we see them functioning today. We see them in the emergency response rooms. We see them in the groups that um, are able to find safe passages for people fleeing uh, bombardment or uh, harassment by the, by, by the belligerents. We see it in the um, sort of mobile clinics that are set up through volunteer networks. We see it through the, the mutual aid infrastructure that is being put, put up by these very same resistance groups. And these are the same groups that were pushing for democracy in the first place. And I think that we need to recognize exactly what a treasure trove, frankly, of activity that is. You know, oftentimes when you have a, um, a humanitarian situation of this scale, you have the international community through the, its aid infrastructure respond in a very much uh, a tried and tested business as usual way. And what I think would make much more sense for Sudan, because it has this localization infrastructure in place, is to break those habits that frankly, you know, aid habits that aren't working in a place like Sudan. There is no access for aid workers. There is no money that be, can be counted on, not just because uh, it's going elsewhere to Ukraine and to Gaza, but also because, it, frankly, the, you know, just aid envelopes have been getting smaller and smaller. 
So, you know, we need to make use of what already exists and what is already working. And that does mean faithfully following a localization agenda and letting these groups that have already demonstrated that they can function, given these incredibly difficult circumstances in Sudan, giving them the chance to maximize on what already works. And we frankly haven't seen enough of that. Okay, well, that's a that's a good note to end on. And, and I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Sudanese political analyst and broadcaster, Khaled Her. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers. Contributors like Halud. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights. Insights you'll not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.